Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes with soothing decibels. I am your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 78. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like Renee Zellweger's sour lemon face, Sean Penn's perfection when he plays the screw-up, and mid-90s Meg Ryan and her rom-com dominance. No quote too minor, no side plot too small. This is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. Before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld-level daily observation. Now that I think about it, Meg Ryan, I had the biggest crush on her in the mid-90s. Oh my God. Her and IQ, Sleepless in Seattle. There's just something like, even uh, You've Got Mail. I think that was like a little later. But uh, she's just so, I don't know, just so like likability about her. And there's just something like, pure and like her moral compass points the right way and it's like that kind of a short haircut that mid short curly haircut that very few people can pull off just i love mid-90s meg ryan not any other meg ryan get out of here 2000s meg ryan or 80s meg ryan i don't want any of that i want mid-90s rom-com hour and a half of turn my brain off and feel good meg ryan so that wasn't even part of my uh notes for my daily observations it's just when i said the meg ryan thing before i was like i gotta, I gotta talk about this a little bit more i end up bringing up meg ryan in my life like once a month and just i'm fascinated by her career maybe i'll talk about mid-90s i'll do a mid-90s run of meg ryan stuff at some point that'd be fun but in on the completely other side of the spectrum i begrudgingly watched aliens last night and i know it's a masterwork from james cameron i want to call him jimmy jimmy c jimmy c and I'm aware that it's universally seen as one of the best three sci-fi action movies of all time. And I'm painfully aware that my soon-to-be-released 80s podcast would be a sham, like a downright sham, if I didn't see one of the defining movies of the decade that I'm talking about. Like, I know, I know, I know. But in my defense, the xenomorphs, the you know aliens in the alien movie, are like the most horrifying movie monsters of all time. Everything about them gives me the goddamn willies, okay? Like, they lay their eggs in our bodies, human bodies, so they can phallically burst out unexpectedly of our chest cavities. While we're still alive, too. The guy's always, like, shaking, or it's like you start having a tremor, and then you're watching it, and you're like, am I starting to shake? Is there an alien inside me? I hope not. Or, like, there's a body that looks dead, but they open their eyes right when their alien's about to explode. Why's that got to happen? Why can't they just be... I mean, I guess it's a horror movie, and, you know, it's gross stuff, so it's supposed to, like make me think about that all the time. You know, you wake up, you're like, is there an alien in my chest? But there's not, at least so far. And this is just a movie. So relax, Max, and relax everyone out there. I mean, relax mostly me, because this stuff freaks me out. And that's not even like, there's like 10 different things about these aliens that freak me out. Like the face huggers crawl out of these giant, wet dinosaur eggs that instantly make you want to lose your appetite. Like I was trying to eat an avocado today, and it kind of like squished together a little bit. And I was like, ah, oh, I, can't, I can't eat this because it reminds me of the alien egg and all that wet. Wet eggs are gross, okay? Wet giant eggs that have like, and they have like kind of like a lizard mouth that are opening and closing. Just no. And then outside of them. And then there's the monsters that scurry out of them, the face huggers. They like slither, they scurry. And they look like horror movie spider hand scorpion combinations. And they're like flesh tone too. And, like, their little suckers crazy, and they have, like, a very powerful tail that they can wrap your neck in. It's like, my God. Like, they take human beings and wrap them up in spiderweb-like cocoons so they can use them as hosts to birth more creepy crawlies. Like, who made this stuff? Like, who who decided I'm going to freak out a generation? I'm going to freak Max out 
Like who, I want to know, like who, who, what, what goes on in these people's heads? And that's just how they procreate, okay? That's not even like how the actual beasts look. Like the beasts themselves, the xenomorphs, have acid blood. So like, you know, their blood just melts people's faces or melts metal. You know, that's always a scary thing. You look up and then the metal, the little drip of the blood comes down and it's like, it starts like going through stuff. They're like 13 feet tall. You're not really sure because you never get like a great look at them. And they're gooey and they're wet and they're eyeless for some reason. I never see their eyes. That's gross. And they have a mouth that has a tiny flicking head with teeth inside of it, inside the mouth that like juts out and can like go through the back of your head like the orifice is like their mouth alone is already horrifying with all those teeth they got like shark teeth kind of like shark snake teeth and i don't need to see like another head inside of that that's terrifying and their bodies are midnight level black and usually it's a poorly lit spaceship where they can like blend into the goddamn walls and effortlessly unravel and like god knows how many limbs they have i think they have four arms and i'm not sure how many legs these giant whip-like tails that are like half scorpion, half like a spear you can control with like your mind. I don't know. And like they feast on our bones. They just rip through us and they just eat us. And it doesn't seem like they even eat us. They just want to destroy us. Like, no, thank you. Okay. It's gross. And I know it's a great movie, but like I want, I have to go to sleep at some point. I don't need Freddy Krueger, you know, showing me an alien movie, but for the sake of the podcast and for the sake of television and for the sake of you viewers out there, because I'm sure this is entertaining seeing me squirm, but I gritted my teeth and soaked it all in last night and lo and behold, was not nearly as grossed out or as terrified as I was with Alien 1 because Alien 1 is more quiet the whole first half of the movie and then, you know, it all gets gross, you know, like just with the xenomorph popping out of the stomach at dinner unexpectedly, like they didn't know what was going on. This one, at least you have an idea, like, they already know about aliens and they're like prepping for it. So it's much more, it's much more an action movie. There's guns blazing, there's badass Marines and there's lots of Xenomorph large attacks rather than the rarely seen like one monster lurking in the unknown. I hate the one monster. That's like, cause you never know where he is. He's or it is. Cause I think the big one's the queen. So it's he or she is. And you know, it just feels like bigger than the one thing. And you're more scared about what's behind the corner with the big attacks. I can handle a little bit more. Plus it's a super funny movie. Like, Bill Paxton's losing his mind every four seconds. That whole, game over, man. Game over. <laughs> so, so great. I miss Bill Paxton. She's so nuts. And, oh, and Alien movies, though, do have the best robots and, like, best robot characterizations. Like, they're oddly human in their emotions, but they're, like, 78% normal emotions, and 22% of it seems like quirky malfunctions, or they're upset that they're not considered real human beings. And like, they don't, it seems like they don't fully understand their programming. Like they're like, I feel human. I know I'm not, I'm perfect in a lot of other things. And my, they're filled with white goo too. Whenever they like get cut open, it's always gross. And just, it's like milky white exploding stuff, which is really gross. <laughs> and the one, the robot in this one is uh, Bishop. And I could watch, he does this one scene where he does a knife trick between his fingers. You know, he like kind of stabs in between his fingers as fast as possible. And I could watch that scene for hours. He's like, no, I don't want to do it. And they're like, do it. He's like, okay, okay. And then he does it on Bill Faxon's hands super fast. And after I watched this movie, I watched that scene on YouTube like 38 times. So good. And also, I mean, the new movies like Prometheus and the new Alien movies, David, played by Michael Fassbender, has like the new level uh, AI is fantastic too. They just do a great job with aliens. I think Ian Holm was the original artificial intelligence in Alien 1. And super cool too, Fallout Boy 
has a music video for a song called Bishop's Knife Trick. Knife Trick. And I never put it together. And now I'm like, oh, two things I love coming together. Awesome. So for that alone, but it was, you know, a good experience. Also, pro tip, if you're watching horror or gore, smile during the tense scenes. Like the muscle memory puts your brain and body in a more comfortable state. Yeah, it's weird, but it works. I swear to God, try it. I wouldn't say it otherwise. Anyways, I came, I saw, I conquered the spooky. And now let's talk about something mindlessly fun. Although, dang, I'm going to have to, I just realized I need to watch uh, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And I'm a big non-zombie guy. So that'll be next. You'll see. <laughs> Maybe I'll, it's fun to talk about how kind of scared of this stuff I am. You know, it's like, it's like a therapy session. I'm on the couch and you're, you know, Freud just stroking your beard. So let's talk about something completely different and mindlessly fun. Like I said, Sex and the City. You know, the show like, da-na, 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 na-na, na 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 Great, great opening theme song. Very catchy. Always puts me in a good mood. My girlfriend is currently binging it for the first time. So I got sucked into her entertainment gravitational pull, as we in relationships often do. And I got to recall how charming and satisfying this generational show truly is. It's a generational show. It was a cult thing back in the day. I watched it originally when it was on HBO for its six-season run from 1998 to 2004. I was 12 when it was released and 18 when it concluded. And I remember being captivated by an HBO show that had four strong, intelligent, hilarious female leads who were also sexual beings who could verbalize what they wanted in a relationship, both inside and outside of the bedroom. This is the first time I ever heard women talking about like orgasms and stuff like that. And I don't know, there's just something confident and it was kind of groundbreaking at the time. Like remember up to this point, there was rarely a female lead in a culturally important show. And the women that were put on screen were usually trapped in PG rated network TV straitjackets. The best example, like the gals on Friends were just watered down versions of real human beings. Sex and the City put women to the forefront as fully formed characters who you understood at a molecular level. So for those of you uninformed, Sex and the City followed the lives and love of four Manhattan female friends. Carrie Bradshaw, the lead, and a sex columnist for a New York newspaper. I know that we live at Red Newspaper back in the day. Shocking, I know. And she kind of had this gift of the Ferris Bueller, Deadpool, Fight Club, fourth, fourth wall breaking where she could talk to the audience and kind of, you know, uh, narrate over stuff. And I think the... The show's based on the book of Candace Bruchel, I believe her name is, and Carrie's based on her. And then you had Miranda Hobbs, who was the neurotic, workaholic, redhead, law firm partner, who was a smart aleck, independent woman, warrior ward of the group. Charlotte York, the yuppie, love-obsessed manager of an art gallery who was repressed, tight-ass friend we all have. You know, she's from like Connecticut, you know, kind of a well-to-do, you know, that kind of, we all, we all know a Charlotte York. And then there was Samantha Jones, who I don't think anyone knows someone like her. She was the public relations guru who was a confident sexual goddess who spit on the idea of monogamy from a great height. The best scenes in the show were when all four gals were at some brunch spot, like analyzing relationships, men, dating, sex, and modern gender dynamics. And it was almost like a like Monday morning quarterback, like ESPN, like how they're breaking down film. They'd almost break down the film of dates and, you know, what happened, what went wrong, how was the sex, uh, you know, uh, connection points. Is this the real thing? Is it fake? Is he into me? Is he not? Am I into him? If Because I'm not into him, is he into me now? You know, just stuff like that. And, I mean, the brunch places were awesome, too. I actually, I go to New York quite a bit and I've gone to some of them. I went to ABC kitchen and Brasserie eight and a half. So 
it's a, it's fun though. Like, I think there's even a Sex in the City bus tour in New York City, which I definitely should take at some point, where they kind of show you all the places in the city where they went. Because it was just fun watching them because they're highly intelligent, well-spoken individuals who are the type of friends you can kind of simultaneously give advice while pushing their best friend's buttons with clever, clever, cleverly worded digs. So it's like Aaron Sorkin became interested in dating rather than saving the world politically. Like that's how like tight and kind of fast paced the dialogue is. Like I said, it's snappy, it's snarky, and it's a delight to watch them bounce off each other with such energy and insight. It's a peculiar show though, because most timeless cult classics don't pivot their style midway through their run. I mean, Entourage was just Entourage forever. The Wire was about hopelessness, Mad Men, you know, drinking 60s uh, ad men and, you know, their lives. But in Sex and the City, the first two seasons are kind of incongruent from the last four. Both are equally excellent, but the first two seasons are much more revolutionary and unique. Like the show in the first two seasons has this weird Woody Allen, neurotic New York feel to it. Like, you know that the people who wrote the show were from New York. They got it. They understood the kind of the strangeness of living in this, like, of this island of, you know, just weirdos. And there's random street interviews of people in relationships in, in the first two seasons. I remember one where there was one person telling, like, signing sign language to her uh, significant other. And the other guy looks right at the camera and goes, I don't speak sign language. <laughs> so just stuff like that. Like, a lot more scenes of non-glammed up sexual encounters and an authenticity that made the situations kind of more emotionally believable. Seasons three through six morphed into New York City life fantasy porn, basically. Like, I think with an increased budget and popularity, the show started to care more about way over-the-top fashion choices, shooting at the trendiest bars and restaurants and nightclubs in New York, and making each sex scene seem like an A-plus kind of glammed up version of General Hospital. It's not a worse show. It's just a tad less daring about what it was trying to say and kind of became more concerned with creating a Manhattan fantasy world of whimsy and wonder. So by by season three, season one and two, yeah, they look glamorous, but they weren't like, you know, oh my God, where did she get that? I need to see where, like, I've never seen anyone wear that in my life. Like by season three, Carrie always had Manoa Blahniks on or Jimmy Choo's on her feet. Those like $700 shoes. She would wear like Chanel jumpsuits that had like, spray painted stuff on them that were like $10,000 jumpsuits. And she was a columnist for a New York City paper. It's not like she was, you know, could afford any of this stuff, but the fashion budget could afford that stuff. Like Samantha had Birkin bags at the yin yang and the weddings and parties and events all felt like the cost in the second figure range. Charlotte would always be like, always just head to toe in either Burberry or Ralph Lauren. And Miranda... Miranda was like the least fashionable because she was a lawyer, but her professional stuff was pretty legit. And she wore some stuff once in a while that was pretty like outlandish and colorful and floral and seemed like it was, you know, couture. That's the word, right? Couture. Yeah. But I mean, watching all of them with all this crazy stuff, that was fun as well. Oh, and Samantha always had these crazy like long dangly earrings that looked like they were plastic, but they looked really expensive. I don't know what it is, but she could pull it off. So like, it's it's very New York. It's like this endless supply of new and shiny, fun things that New York can provide. Like Man- Manhattan was really the star of the show as much as the characters because the characters would bitch and moan about how the city makes people crazy. But you know, you always know that like at the end, they love the city and like the majesty of just kind of existing and like the greatest place on earth or, you know, the most kind of diverse and unique place on earth. Like, I can't imagine how many young women dreamed of going to New York and living the Carrie Bradshaw lifestyle. Like, I think there was a stretch. I work at a bar in Michigan, and 
there was a lot, I mean, a lot of the girls that went there were University of Michigan communication majors or psychology majors who were going to go to New York and be in public public relations. And I can't help but think that's just a Samantha Jones, you know, just influence kind of thing. Like, I want to be that. Like, I'm a 34-year-old man, and it still entices me at least one, a few times every episode. I'm like, man, I want to live that Samantha Jones lifestyle and that Carrie Bradshaw lifestyle. Just have brunch with my friends, you know, I mean, buy lots of fashion stuff, write about my thoughts on life and love in the city, and, you know, date around. I don't know. It just seemed, it seemed intoxicating and fun. Like, they would, be, they would go to, like, hidden speakeasies where you need a key to get in. They seem like there's fashion shows weekly, art installations monthly high-end dessert restaurants where you can dish about life with your three best friends, like who support you no matter what. It's like a consistent joy to watch the ladies of Sex in the City fall in and out of love as their closest friends dispense sage advice with speed and intensity of like a fire hose. You know, that sounds awesome. My friends are, my friends' advice is meh, they're okay. But I don't have like the, I'm, I don't have like the brunch scenario that they do. And also, I mean, these are, well, I guess I'm, I'm of the age that they're at. Okay. So maybe, I mean, they're being written by other people. So I feel less bad. <laughs> I might, my life is not a scripted, you know, uh, HBO show that got cost millions of dollars just coming out of my mouth. But the show was unafraid to blemish their main characters too, which I respected. And remember, this was occurring a year before the Sopranos made the anti-hero shows acceptable by the mainstream. Like Sex and the City pulled no punches. Like Carrie would date a married man. Samantha would cheat constantly and not apologize for it. Miranda would eat a cheesecake out of the trash uh, when her impulse control malfunctioned. That was a great episode. Oh, it was a chocolate cake, actually. My bad. Not a cheesecake. But I mean, I'm sure she'd eat a cheesecake out of the, out of the trash, too. Probably be harder, though. It's kind of more congealing. I think it would spill more. But anyways, she ate a cheesecake out of the trash, and that happened. And Charlotte would be ungrateful for her charmed life existence and bitch and moan about the smallest imperfections in her life. Like, they felt real. They felt like real people that you knew. Despite wearing $15,000 dresses and always knowing the hottest spot in the city, they're still vulnerable hearts who could get hurt and hurt others. And, you know, that was important. And they sometimes learned from their errors and grew as people. And sometimes situations blew up in their face. And that was that. Like, their decisions felt grounded in how real people deal with life and love, which is why I think American viewers fell so deeply in love with the show. But the series finale, it was a full-on event uh, it was a big deal. Like, I think they had one of those things where it's like two hours beforehand recapping everything. And I think it was a full hour, uh, finale where they had three different endings filmed just in case. And I got, I'm not gonna lie. I got teared up. I got teared up, uh, during that final episode and you know, all the, it was just, it was just an emotional ride and you, you know, you felt connected to these ladies and like all the victories that Carrie, Miranda, Charlotte, and Samantha had by the end of the series, they felt earned. Like they felt like, they had learned from something in season three or a uh, relationship in season four had helped them grow as a person. And like you adore their friendship and steadfastness with each other and hoped you had people in your life that meant so much to you. And I just, I love this. I love the show. I loved it so much. I painted my childhood bathroom, the same shade of red as Carrie's on again, off again, main love interest, Mr. Big played by Chris North, Chris North. Yeah. Chris North. And I mean, that's weird. <laughs> I, was, I was a strange kid. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. But I don't know. That's how much I related to the show. It's like I wanted to paint my bathroom the same that he painted one of his walls in his uh, bedroom. So that's me. But uh, the movies were decent. They kind of leaned on the opulence angle rather than the character bonds. But it was still a visual meal of that proportion. Plus, I miss hanging out with my New York gals. I think the mistake is in the first one, they went to Mexico. So, like, the city wasn't a part of it for an hour. In the second one, they went to Dubai. 
And it's like the main part of the show is like the city. Be have the girls in the city. Don't take them out of the city. That's like saying Jaws without without the shark. Like no, I don't want that. And I hope they make a third one where they're all in their sixties and it's like a Golden Girls vibe. Like that would be delight. And my favorite boyfriends, just uh, off the top of my head, like the ladies had during the seasons, were Aiden. Oh, poor Aiden. I feel sad for him. You know, he was just the nicest guy, and he made furniture. He made furniture for you, Carrie. You were a jerk, putting that ring on your neck. You don't even wear that ring on your finger, Carrie. For shame. Mr. Big, love Mr. Big. Just that old New York money, arrogance. You know what I mean? Has a driver named Raul in a Lincoln Town car. Lots of like, you know, he feels like he's out of the 40s, 50s. He feels like a Cary Grant kind of vibe. Harry was perfect for Charlotte. Loved him. You know, it's kind of funny because he's such a jerk on Californication. Like in this show, he's just so corny and lovable. Steve for... uh for Miranda was great. You know, the New York bartender with the voice like this. Yeah, that's funny. He's like, and he's got the glasses. He's cute. You know, it was a good, uh, it was a good dynamic between him and Miranda. Richard was a jerk, but you know, him and uh, Samantha together was like a power couple. I expected that. I respect that. And Smith was like the best looking dude on the face of the earth. So props to Samantha for locking that down. And weirdly the ADD trumpet player that Carrie dated for like one episode uh, in like season three. I don't know. It just stuck with me. And so this has been fun. Like the show is on HBO max. So, and it's on, it's in its entirety. You can watch all six seasons and you know, it's 25, 30 minutes an episode. So it's really fun to just rip through and also a top five theme song ever. You know, I sang it before and it just always puts me in a great mood. You know, that I can't sing, but I like it. So that's what I got. And I think I'm going to go watch another episode right now. So later.